university professors spend a lot of time talking about a lot of things with each other at academic conferences and in academic journals. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals, and I want to talk to you. Some of the most interesting thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard by people outside of the walls of academia, so I'm on a mission to bring those thoughts to you. Fabulous people, interesting ideas, brilliant conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever it is you are. This is Dr. Christopher Bell. You are on the Deconstruction Workers. And today I have something really new and exciting for you. This is a live episode. Currently, I am sitting in a conference room in Albuquerque at the Southwest Popular American Culture Association Conference, and I am joined in this very small semicircle around this <laughs> microphone by several of our deconstruction worker colleagues. So the way that this is going to work is slightly different from our normal episodes, as you can probably already hear in the audio. The reason for that is because this episode is going to be largely unproduced. It's going to be pretty much straight from the tap of what the conversation is this afternoon here at this Harry Potter Studies conference. So joining me today is Dr. Lauren Kamachi from Penn State, Dr. Tracy Beeler from the Borough of Manhattan Community College, Marley Williford from Bowling Green State University, and Dustin Dunaway, Chair of Communication and English at Pueblo Community College in Pueblo, Colorado. Welcome, party people. Hey, hey. good to be here. <laughs> what we're going to be doing today is talking a little bit about the research that we have seen here at the conference and what was going on this week and what kinds of stuff people were talking about in terms of Harry Potter studies this year. Harry Potter Studies, for those of you who remember from the first season, is a, an interdisciplinary group of scholars who come together to use Harry Potter to discuss a variety of things within their own fields, whether that is English or sociology or communication or, in some cases, religious studies or chemistry or whatever. There's lots of stuff that happens here. So I'm going to talk a little bit today about the research I presented, everyone else will talk about the research that they presented, and then we'll we'll cover some really awesome research we heard that none of us presented, but we think you probably ought to hear. So, with that said, who would like to who would like to kick us off? Well, maybe Dustin should go first since he presented in a different division, <laughs> which would be helpful to explain that at the uh, Southwest Popular and American Culture Association Conference, Harry Potter Studies division is just one division among many that presents here. And so there are lots and lots of other cool things going on. Dustin was a part of one of those other cool things. Yes, you all are Harry Potter natives. Yes. I'm a Harry Potter immigrant, so to speak. <laughs> so it is interesting to me as kind of a having an outsider's point of view. I get to learn all of these things rather than you know, presenting my own work. So it's, it's always interesting to me to see what other people are doing and seeing how I can apply some of the, the lenses that you use academically to some of my my own work. My area this year was in fandom studies and stardom uh, where I talked about Freddie Mercury and 
I think it does cross over somewhat to what you were doing here because what I was looking at is if your story, your life story is a text that you are currently writing, what happens when you are done with that text? Who owns it? And what do we get to do with it? Right? Because you no longer own it, you no longer have control over it. In the same way that when you utter something or when you complete a book like JK Rowling did, she no longer has control over that as well. It belongs to Warner Brothers or it belongs to the fandom or it belongs to certain parts of the fandom who, who read it before Warner Brothers got their hands on it or it belongs to Universal Studios creating their own version of Hogwarts. So the, the question of if you create this life text, what happens to it once you're dead? You know? And what I've postulated is, according to uses and gratifications theory, is anybody who can get their grubby little mitts on it gets <laughs> to use it for whatever reason they want to. So, and that's very much the same thing that we've been talking about since I've been coming here. It's been about four years for me that people use texts for different reasons. Right. And I know that you've done a, Lauren's done a lot of work with uh, Canon. So drawing those boundaries over what is truly the text versus what is just kind of text versus what is a separate text but also related is a, a large part of your area as well. Something I've synthesized from the many years of discussion and lively debate that we've had at this conference. Uh, Marley, what were you working on here? So, uh, what I presented this week was kind of an expansion on your work, Dr. Bell, on trinities in Harry Potter. The, the classic literary trinity of um, mind, body, and soul is translated into Harry Potter, specifically with the three main characters, where uh, Harry re represents the body or power axis of that triangle, Hermione represents the knowledge or mind axis, and then Ron represents the soul or the love axis. And so what I did was I took that and I expanded it to 12 characters um, within the story because you can find not only that trinity but related trinities in character foils. So Harry kind of takes on the legacy of his father, James Potter, and the other characters that were involved in the first Wizarding War kind of follow along those lines of similar mind, body, and soul axes with different characteristics attached to them. And what it really came down to was that Rowling used these to put a theme of legacy and redemption in the story to kind of solidify the failure of the first Wizarding War being the failure of these six characters, James, Sirius, Lupin, Severus Snape, Lily, Evans, and Peter Pettigrew, and then the subsequent redemption of those characters and then win winning the Wizarding War with Harry, Ron, Hermione, Luna, Neville, and someone else. <laughs> Who is Ginny. that one? Ginny, Ginny of yes. course. We can't forget Ginny. So, yeah, so I, uh, it was kind of like this. There were a lot of triangles. <laughs> There's a lot of triangles. There are a lot of triangles within <laughs> this particular narrative, whether it's the three Deathly Hallows or the three brothers or, well, the, the Dumbledores, uh, the kids, uh -huh. Ariana, Albus, and Aberforth, or 
you know, pick what Draco, Crab, and Goyle, or, or Love Triangles or, got brought up. Love in Triangles. That. They're trinities with um, the three sisters, Bellatrix, Andromeda, and Narcissa. So there's trinities all over this story, and usually you can attach them to those same axes of the triangle. So I just expanded that to what I would consider the six main characters of the second wizarding war, the most important people. And and then of course all of the first six died and the second six all survived despite the bloodbath that it was at the end of book seven. So Right. Yeah. In in and I can't remember if this was my conception of this or if this was your original conception of it, but one thing that we had discussed very early on in this work was that the Marauders fail because James Remus and Sirius try to supplement their trio with a singular, which is Peter. And that necessarily means they fail because the only way to augment that trio is with another trio. So when Harry, Ron, and Hermione need help, they don't go to one person, they go to Neville, Luna, and Ginny, which then that trio underpinning the second trio is a more stable structure. Yeah, and I did talk about the stability that triangles give to the narrative. I think that was you, though. Uh, The part that was me, though, was the characteristics that I assigned to the, the secondary mains, which are, instead of power, love, and knowledge, were skill, courage, and wisdom respectively so same kind of characteristics but very different applications and and then they foil the other characters too that specifically i think with hermione and luna they provide really good foils for each other because while hermione is very witty and clever uh she doesn't have a lot of intuition she's got a lot of book smarts but not a lot of street smarts and luna is the exact opposite of that where luna has this very creative intuitive wisdom that she puts to excellent use and is still but is still a same piece of the the pie the puzzle there and when chris and marley are talking about whose idea was it there's there's a reason for that and it's because this project has been in the works slowly for at least four years is it oh almost it's been sort of a collaboration effort it's been building on each other's scholarship it's and it was developed here at swapaka in part through the conversations that we had in in roundtables and then also it was my my senior thesis it was well it was your it was your final paper for your for your class with me Mm -hmm. in the harry potter class which then we expanded as your final project for your capstone Right, yeah. Which then you wrote up as a book chapter, which then got expanded here. So this, yeah. Yeah, it's just snowballed. I've sort, I sort of, I sort of lit a flame and handed it to Marley, and she's run with it as a torch. I mean, yeah. it's, yeah, it's been a developing project. Definitely. Tracy, what have you been working on here? Well, so for the past several years here at the Harry Potter division, in my talks, I've liked to say this really provocative thing at the very end of the talk and then just sort of run out of the room. <laughs> and that provocative thing I like to say was, magic wands are evil, they're a disciplinary technology, we should reject them, and then I would just leave. <laughs> <laughs> but I realized that I hadn't really thought through my position very completely <laughs> on magic wands just being evil. So this year I wanted to explore a bit more what I saw as the tension between wand lore, which seems to be a very mystifying and esoteric 
art in which the wizard chooses or the wand chooses the wizard and it's a, a magical in every sense of the word relationship and the fact that magic wands are commodities that are produced and sold at Diagon Alley. And so I wanted to look at maybe why the production aspect of wands, how they get made, how they get the magical substance from each of the animals who harvest the wood, these sorts of things, how that part of owning a magic wand gets obscured and why it becomes a magical, mystical relationship and how Ollivander himself encourages the latter, therefore absenting himself and his labor from the process. And so I came up with very tangential conclusions, but it was, I think for me, a more complete thinking through of this very central technology in the series. The interesting part about this idea of the wand that Tracy brought up yesterday in her, in her presentation that I hadn't thought about was whether or not wizards actually need wands at all, or if it is the belief in the power of the wand that makes the wand a magical object. Because wand lore, once you read into the, the novels, once you start reading specifically for how they talk about wands, the, the rules are all over the place. Mm -hmm. And there's a line from the books that says, a true wizard can channel his magic through any object, essentially. So the magic comes from you, not from the wand. The wand is just a conduit. And this is where the issue of canon mm. becomes really important because depending on which canon you're using, the, the wand lore changes drastically and also what wands can actually do changes drastically. Like one of the... It's not even really a criticism, it's just like I'm peeved by it in the Fantastic Beasts movies, is that magic, like wandless magic, is just everywhere, where before it was basically only really powerful wizards are able to do wandless magic, and it's kind of impressive. But the movies kind of throw that to the wind, and especially the Fantastic Beasts movies. And, and then Pottermore also kind of complicates the, the whole wand lore thing, too. Yeah, Queenie does all kinds of magic without a wand. So we're either led to believe that Queenie That's is... That's a character from Fantastic Beasts. Yeah. Right. Uh, Queenie either is this hyper-powerful witch in this very specific way we didn't know about, or the rules don't really matter. Mm -hmm. there's, there's really no other way to interpret her as a character. Well, and I think whenever you get a lot of narratives surrounding a relationship or an object that are not only competing with each other, but actively contradict each other, you have power being expressed and channeled and reified. And so I think it matters that there are all these different stories and that they don't make sense, that there isn't one narrative. So I like to trace them back and see who benefits from this particular way of imagining the wand and its importance. Yeah, it really strengthens your your thesis the more the wand wand magic gets confused. How convenient for me. <laughs> uh, Lauren, what are you what were you working on this time around? My paper was called Merlin's Pants, and I was looking at swear words and invocations of the word god in the books. I've been thinking about this issue for about 20 years now. But I didn't really start thinking about it by way of numbers and really trying to figure out what was going on until I was getting ready for this paper and 
So my paper this time was far more quantitative than it usually is. I looked a lot at counting instances of certain words cropping up or not cropping up and who's using them and what's going on here. And I'm still really in the initial stages of trying to turn it into something, but something's definitely there when we see that, for example, the name of Merlin and the name of God are invoked the same amount of times and that they're both invoked mostly by men. We also see mostly men using actual cuss words and we also usually see more women than anybody else using words like, oh, for heaven's sake. So I, I suspect that because Harry Potter is a touchstone text for a whole generation or depending on people who study generations like Dr. Bell, uh, maybe a generation and a half of readers, it becomes a means by which young readers can learn something about the way to properly live their lives and behave in the public sphere, especially along gendered lines. The interesting thing for me about the way that language gets used in Harry Potter is that you've got this sort of parallel track of swears. That is, you've got the traditional swears that we see in the in the real world. Those are almost exclusively used by Ron. <laughs> Very few other people curse in the way that Ron does, which then comes all the way back around in the seventh book where Molly Weasley outright swears in a, in a very muggle way that most characters don't. But then you've got this whole other side of swearing that is completely Wizarding World-based and that takes on the form less of sort of our traditional swear words and more of things that would only make sense if you grew up in a place where wizards were the commonplace, right? Mm -hmm. So you get Merlin's beard, you get Merlin's pants. You get galloping gargoyles. Right. Things that sound ridiculous, but they sound ridiculous because they're outside of our sort of daily consciousness. Mm -hmm. In the same way that it's jarring and weird when people who have grown up entirely in a wizarding world use muggle swear words, Mm -hmm. which I I, I find really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We talked about it in the context of how language bleeds between cultures that live side by side. In the wizarding world, for those who aren't familiar with the text, the wizards chose to go into hiding in the 1600s because they were tired of getting burnt at the stake. And so they uh, separated themselves from muggle society, but they lived within it still. So it doesn't exactly surprise me that the words bled together, but the way that they're being used seems to take on a different quality than maybe they would. In some ways very similar, in some ways very different from the quality we would see muggles using them. Muggles, non-magic folk. Again, this isn't a Harry Potter podcast. We keep trying to (laughs) (laughs) use definitions when possible. If you've made it this far into this particular episode, my guess is you already know quite a bit about Harry Potter, but just in case, this episode is sort of dually about the scholarship that is going on specifically in Harry Potter studies, but also about the way in which scholars get together to talk about a popular culture thing. In this case, the thing happens to be Harry Potter, but as Dustin said earlier, you know, his work here wasn't in Harry Potter, yet he is a part of this discursive community, Mm -hmm. this academic discursive community. I think that's the kind of unique thing about Harry Potter conference at Swapaka because I do go to panels in the other areas occasionally, but this is 
the one that most solidly feels like a community, like there's more consistency between panels of who's here and, and who shows up every year. It's something that I really appreciate about this area of this conference specifically. Between us and the Grateful Dead folks, there's like a whole thing of deadhead beatings to yes. go on to. They're also a community in the way that we are a community. Right. They're in the same room every year too. <laughs> up on the 19th floor. Most, most, of the, most of the people at this conference end up in the same spaces every year. Mm -hmm. So game studies is always in those ballrooms. You know, we're always in this room. The deadheads are always in that same room. So it becomes, the, the space itself becomes a part of the community, mm -hmm. yeah. which I, I think is cool. But hang on a second. We'll be back in two and two. We're gonna take a little break here and we'll come right back. Did you know that the Deconstruction Workers has a Patreon page? Well, we do. And this week I wanna give a shout out to our actual Patreon patrons. What's up Ashton, Dalton, Kimberly, and Steve this week. Thank you so much for your support of the podcast. And if you would like to support the, the, the Deconstruction Workers podcast, you can do that by going to www.patreon.com slash podcast DCW. You can donate as little as $1 towards keeping the lights on, and we would really appreciate your support. So again, head on down to www.patreon.com slash podcast DCW, and thanks for hanging out with us. Now, back to the show. So, obviously, the five of us are not the only people here at this conference doing good work. We heard all kinds of really great stuff over the last three days. So, I thought maybe we'd do a little roundup of some of the, of some of the coolest or most interesting things we heard this weekend. So... What do you got, Lauren? Um, you need to talk about your paper because yeah. it's the coolest thing I've I ever didn't talk. <laughs> I didn't talk about my own research. I wasn't gonna. I, I wasn't gonna throw my hat in there. But, but um, that would be on my list of one of the cooler things we saw this weekend. So let's hear. Oh it. well, thanks. So this year, what I was looking at was the way in which Harry Potter, the Harry Potter story, can be used for a model for how we might be able to talk about being biracial in society. One of the realities of my life, of the life of my wife, of the life of my daughter, and of lots of people that I know, is it's hard to talk about our own identities as biracial people because being biracial isn't a thing in our society. You know, one of the things that happens to biracial people is they get defaulted into whatever category they most closely visually are represented by, and then that's what other people, that's how other people represent them. So myself, my daughter, we often just are, are categorized as black. My wife is often just categorized as Latina. And that discounts the biracial nature of our existence. In much the same way that being a half-blood in the wizarding world works. We have terminology for being, a, a, you know, having two wizard parents, that's a pure blood. We have terminology for having two muggle parents, that's muggle-born or mud blood. But we don't really have good terminology for someone who has one of each. In the, in the books, by the time we hit the sixth book, they come up with the term half-blood, which is a very short leap to half-breed, which most biracial people have experienced being called at least once in their lives. Mm -hmm. But 
the thing that makes it more interesting for me is if we categorize James Potter as a person of color. We don't know anything about James Potter. So because of what I often in my own research, borrowing from Stuart Hall, call racist common sense, we tend to default characters in our brains as white unless the author tells us differently. So if the author tells us the character is black, they're black, or it tells us they're Latina, they're Latina. But if the author says nothing, we just assume they're white, which is a whole huge problem all of its own that I wouldn't have time to sort of get into right now. But if we don't do that, if we look at the actual physical descriptions of people in the text, what we find is that Lily Potter is described as white. She has green eyes, she has red hair, she has fair skin. She is repeatedly described in terms that we could categorize her as white. James Potter, on the other hand, does not get that same description. He is tall, he has dark hair, and he wears glasses, and that's the only real physical description we ever get of him. And because of that, there's nothing that precludes us from thinking about James Potter as a person of color. And when we do think about James Potter as a person of color, all the stuff that gets said, not just about him, but about Harry as well, becomes much more nuanced and interesting because it takes on all of these racist overtones. This is why people coming up to him all the time and saying, you have your mother's eyes, is such a really important thing because if he's a dark-skinned person with green eyes, that would really stand out in society, much as it does whenever you see a brown-skinned person with light eyes today. It's very sort of visually, oh, I wasn't expecting that. So that could be one of the reasons why people continue to bring that up to him is because it's his marker of his white mother. It also becomes really interesting when we start looking at the kinds of things that, for example, Marge Dursley says to Harry in the third book. You know, calling him poorly bred, saying he's underbred, saying the problem is in his bad blood. She brings him dog biscuits for Christmas. She never uses his name once in that entire chapter. She just refers to him as boy, which any person, any, any man of color who has had that epithet used against them understands that that is very racially charged. So if we look at James Potter as this person of color, we understand why both in the wizarding world and in the muggle world, Harry experiences all of these overtly racist kinds of things said to him. Marge Dursley has no reason to suspect James Potter is a wizard. She just knows Lily ran off with this brown guy. And that gives her entree to be able to harass Harry for his brown skin because his mom ran off with the wrong sort, quote unquote, of person. And then in the wizarding world, that carries over into the blood status issue of his mom being muggle-born and his dad being uh, pure blood. So I, I, I compared those two things and basically said, biracial people exist and we never get to talk about our lived experiences and Harry is a good vehicle for being able to do that. So that was my... That was my work this time. And it was a great paper. It was a lot, it, it really engaged the audience. It got a lot of wonderful questions and participation afterward. It was good. Thanks. Yeah, the thing that blew my mind about that was the Marge Dursley stuff because I 
had no it was it completely recontextualizes that entire scene where she shows up so yeah i thought that was a really good use of textual analysis <laughs> but there was lots of other really great stuff there were yeah. really great stuff that we heard this week so what were some of the other things you really done in in the panels that you sat through Beth's presentation about lying and the relationship that Harry has to lying, I really enjoyed. Beth's paper, Beth Sutton Ramsbeck of Ohio State Lima, was called, Do You Really Think This Is About Truth or Lies? Questions of Honesty in the Harry Potter series. And I think what was so captivating about what she presented to us was that she ultimately came to the conclusion that although lying is generally considered to be a morally bad act, in the context of a corrupt world in which these kids are trying to fight it, lying becomes an act of courage and good. And she said it was really difficult to try and understand the role of lies and truth in a society that was broken down so much. And it really was, a, that was a great conclusion, very captivating. Yeah, I thought so too. Especially because she talks about how the ministry kind of forms its own truth and then Harry particularly in book five where Harry's trying to tell everyone that Voldemort's returned and Umbridge representing the ministry and that sort of social order is telling him you must not tell lies. It's a more about the social truth that this huge government institution is trying to impose and Harry trying to combat that reality with with truth was so revolutionary and I just thought it was great and it gives us a lot of jumping off points for other ways to talk about the different kind of fascist narratives going on in Harry Potter which if you guys spend any amount of time with me I'm really all about fascists right now like that's all I can talk about or think about which is kind of a sad existence I, I know <laughs> but it especially with regards to Harry Potter it's totally relevant Brian Bernard of Shriner University his paper yes. blew my mind in a way that made me uncomfortable to be around my computer later that day. <laughs> his paper was titled wizard interactions with portraits a glimpse into the future into future relationships between muggles and AI and he was looking at the way that wizards interact with non-human magical objects, things like birds that you conjure out of nowhere, or chocolate frogs, which are chocolates that are, in, that are bewitched to jump around like little frogs, and the way they interact with the portraits is in some ways uh, able to be instructive about how human beings interact with, especially, what was, what's the correct word for it, the, the kind of AI that you train? Supervised machine learning. Machines that we program with a basic set of functions or a basic set of information, but then the machine can then learn based on what it already knows. This kind of adaptive, predictive AI functions very much like portraits do in the Harry Potter world. If we think of portraits not as magical artifacts per se, but as technological advances within that society. And the technology that goes into creating a painting and enchanting it, whatever, is the same kind of machine learning that computer technology is doing right now that will, you know, depending on who you ask, either be the future of civilization or will be Skynet when the Terminators come. <laughs> right. right, he brought up the, the DeepMind AI research group that built the machine that can beat people at StarCraft II, which is a different type of 
responsiveness that you need to beat that game. And yeah, the the, the latter, the sort of tinfoil hat reaction was definitely where I ended up after that. <laughs> We also did a roundtable that was really great this week. It was about the the future of Harry Potter. The one thing that stood out for me was Karen uh, Wenling from Chestnut, Chestnut Hill. Hill. Yes, so posed this question. She w- she posed it like a I'm gonna throw a grenade into this room and then just uh, close my eyes. Was is is interaction with the Harry Potter series gonna go down? Are are we done? Like have we said everything that's gonna be said? And there were a lot of different answers that came up to that. Most of us came out on the more positive end, and maybe maybe just because we all really like Harry Potter studies, we <laughs> wanted to keep going, which was that, no, there's, there's plenty left to say, right? The bottom line is, every year we do this conference, every year we hear new things that we've never heard before. There's still plenty of work to be done. There's still lots of things to talk about. We identified a couple of areas where nobody's really doing any scholarship at all. That might be cool places to go. One of those was sort of Harry Potter and the arts, Mm -hmm. the kinds of things both internally inside of the text and externally, fan art, fan production, film editing, and that kind of stuff. But then inside the text, things like Tracy, for example, uh, gave this really great paper about why there's no wizard theater what the implication is for arts inside of the wizarding world as well. So there's there's still plenty of ground to be covered. And what I always think about too is that every year the, our culture, society is going to change and people are going to go back to Harry Potter and read it in a brand new way. So just like we're getting a lot of Harry Potter scholarship that that's a direct response to the Trump era. Anytime something big like that happens that shakes up society, it, people are going to go back and reread Harry Potter and have all kinds of new interpretations of it. So I think as long as humans are here, we're going to have stuff to say about Harry Potter. And Harry Potter still hasn't been replaced in you know, our life narrative as a thing yet. Like nothing has, has surpassed that in terms of popularity. For me growing up, it was always Star Wars. right? And for us. Right. right. And then then it became Harry Potter. And I think that most people of your generation, uh, micro generation, whatever we want to call it, <laughs> didn't really engage with Star Wars in the same way that we would have. Like, I mean, we just weren't even around to experience Star Wars no, the y- same. My micro one was. Hmm? My micro generation was. Yeah. Because right. I know I have a cousin who's... As, as big of a Star Wars person as you all are, but came in at a different point. Right, right. yeah. Right. Still would agree with you that the, of which ones are the best. Right, Let's right. leave it at that. <laughs> and, and before that, you know, there was Tolkien. Right. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. There will always, and before that there was, you know, you could keep going back and back and back, right? Most, most micro-generations... Uh, one time I will do a whole episode on micro-generations, but one micro-generation has a cultural touchstone and that cultural touchstone becomes the thing for the kids who grew up in that in that era so whether that is something like star trek or star wars or now harry potter and we don't know what it will be for this next micro generation because as dustin points out harry potter hasn't been usurped yet by the next really huge thing although there is an argument to be made that for Gen Z 
or which is the generation that comes right after what we consider millennials, I would make an argument that that could be the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mm -hmm. And we haven't, we, that's a thing that I haven't really explored yet in any sort of great detail, but that's the closest thing we have to the next giant revolution of popular culture stuff. As they come into consciousness during the serialized form of that next big popular culture thing. I think there's probably an argument somewhere made by someone who's not me, uh, and the person who I'm really thinking of is Dr. Rick Stevens, who uh, is another one of the deconstruction workers who does a lot of work in superhero narratives, that text might be the next thing in terms of that popular culture revolution. That's just me speculating. I don't know that that's true, but... But we won't really know until after it happens. <laughs> right. And the problem with the Marvel Cinematic Universe is it's just ongoing because they're adapting 60 years of narratives. Like they have mm -hmm. this large body of work to, to adapt if they wanted to. It's not like Harry Potter where it's, you know, we have seven books, eight movies, and then that's it. Or, or even Star Wars where yeah. we have this sort of internal text. And yes, there's all these other things that have gotten laid on top of it, but the text itself is fairly finite. Yeah. One thing that would be a point in favor of the MCU being that kind of huge cultural touchstone for the next generation would be that all of these have in some way changed the medium or like how we think of that medium. So for Harry Potter, it changed, utterly changed how we think of children's literature. It basically invented the YA genre. And, and for the MCU, it's completely changed how Hollywood structures their release schedule. And hmm. I mean, how many more cinematic universes have we seen try? The, intercon the interconnectedness mm -hmm. among disparate texts, right? Mm -hmm. In the past, you would have one superhero movie, one superhero movie one superhero movie Marvel really has changed the way that we think about linking together things that would have stood on their own in the past and it's changed those huge tentpole movies it's taken them back into serials you used to have like the 10 minute short film and then it would end on a cliffhanger and then I mean that's where cliffhanger comes from like and then the next week you would have to go see the next chapter in the same way now you, you see something like Infinity War, and now you have to wait to figure out what happens to all those people. Uh, do they come back? Do they get their own movie? Do, um, do we replace them with someone? Uh, so it's, it's changed the way that we watch movies. Mm -hmm. Is it okay to change topic? Yeah. I want to shout out to Puffs. Oh my gosh. So we do a tradition every year where we will screen a movie. Usually it's a Harry Potter roulette. We'll pick one of the movies out of a hat and watch that and then critique it. We were going to watch Fantastic Beasts 2 this year, but... There was a sort of a general vibe that people didn't want to sit through it. And so <laughs> what we ended up doing instead was on the suggestion of several people, we decided we would watch Puffs. So if you don't know what Puffs is, Puffs is an off-off Broadway play in which it takes all seven books and it goes through the narrative of all seven books, except it's only told through the perspective of Hufflepuffs because Hufflepuffs are the one group of people 
in the Harry Potter narrative who we know the least amount about, they have the least number of characters, and they those characters have the least amount of immediacy to what's going on in the story, other than Cedric Diggory. Cedric Diggory is the only one we really get a, a really close look at. And even then, I wouldn't even say we get that. So the play is about all of these other Hufflepuff characters, some of which have names and that we know. We know Hannah Abbott, we know Susan Bones, we know Jay Finch, Finch, (laughs) Justin Finch Fletchley, uh, we know Emac, um, Ernie McMillan, we know Zachary Smith, and then they add in several other very, very wonderfully drawn characters who are Hufflepuffs whose names we don't know, and builds this whole cast of characters out of very minor, very marginalized characters that is is compelling and funny and really sort of beautifully shaped mm-hmm. theater. Puffs is available for purchase on Amazon Prime or on Hulu that was part of a Kickstarter project that they got the off-Broadway show filmed so that it could be distributed in that manner. So if you're a Harry Potter person and you haven't seen it, it's worth your 10 bucks to go on to Amazon Prime or to go on to uh, Hulu and to buy it. Not only does it support the production, but it's a, it's a thing as a Harry Potter fan you should see. And don't forget to type in Puff's Play or Puff's Movie, otherwise they're just going to try and sell you some tissues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you like Harry Potter or if you like 27 Dresses references. <laughs> <laughs> It's oh, very man. creative. It's, it just was an absolute pleasure to watch. It and really was. The truly amazing thing about Puffs is that an entire room full of Potter scholars all watched it, and we were all united in its awesomeness. Mm-hmm. That never happens. We always fight. But we didn't have to fight. It was so. It was that good. <laughs> One of the things that I appreciate is the, the central three characters mirror the three characters. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, legacies. Right. right. Yes. <laughs> I was... <laughs> but... They, they also deconstruct the tropes. The, the Hufflepuff who wants to be Slytherin, but deep down, she knows that she's a Hufflepuff. Yeah. The, the two characters who get together, but they're, the side, they're not the main character. The main character doesn't get the, the romance, but the two side characters do. Uh, and it's, you know, it plays with our vision of who Harry, Ron, and Hermione are through Hufflepuff and these, these invented characters how the main character doesn't really have a Draco Malfoy, but the Draco Malfoy becomes Harry Potter. Yeah. Sort of in their life, the person who keeps ruining their life over and over <laughs> becomes Harry Potter, who doesn't even know and doesn't care at all that he is, or she actually, it's played by a woman in the show, doesn't really know at all that he is this huge foil in the lives of these Hufflepuffs. He just shows up and sort of is like, oh, Harry Potter, and like, yay, and moves on. And their lives are in the wake of, of Harry's steamrollering through their, <laughs> through their academic career, which I think is really funny. And Ron is a mop. Yes. Um, is a mop. Hermione is a mop. And in some ways, I think it's a more successful version of what Cursed Child tries to do, which is to say that Harry Potter can be a disaster. And he can. Like the person. Yes, yeah, Yeah, the person. And that there are different ways to tell this story that can live within and alongside the books, which is what I liked about Cursed Child, but I think Puffs did with a defter hand. Mm -hmm. I would agree. I think it's much more successful as a 
para, what's called a paratext. That is a text that lives alongside of the thing that we know and informs the way we think about that thing. So, for example, if you think of Star Wars and you play Force Unleashed, it doesn't give you any greater knowledge about the Star Wars text itself that you know, but it does change the way you think about the Star Wars mm -hmm. universe. It informs how you approach that text. This does the same thing, and I, Tracy's right. I think it does it in a much more successful way than something like Curse of Child does, or even than Fantastic Beasts is doing right now um, as an extension of the, of the Harry Potter universe. One of the templates that I always go back to for something like this is a Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode called The Zeppo, which is, for those of you who don't know Buffy, every year at the end of the season there's an apocalypse, but in the third season, right in the middle of the season, there's an apocalypse that we don't get to see because Buffy and Angel and all of the important people are all fighting it. We stay with Xander, who is the one guy who has literally no discernible <laughs> skills whatsoever, and we get to watch him actually save the world for the first time. But we see it through his eyes. It's the eyes of a side character, someone who is completely unimportant in the grand scheme of things, but it's interesting to see things through through his, his eyes. Speaking of trainings, mm -hmm. too, like Xander is absolutely the Ron of Buffy. Yes. yes. Um, and there, I think they actually, there's an episode, I want to say that's in season four, where they show if you don't have all three members, Xander, Willow, and Buffy, then they won't succeed. And they have to like sort of join together. This is against that's, Adam. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. kind of the thesis of the fourth it's, season, yeah. which is, you know, they're being pulled apart by college because Xander doesn't go. He becomes a townie. Uh, Willow and Buffy are off doing their thing. He feels left behind. Willow starts getting into magic, so she leaves Buffy behind, and they all start to separate from each other, and they, they start to realize that, no, we need each other. Uh, everybody needs to be here uh, in the same way that, you know, the, the Trinity. It, you <laughs> yeah. Know, you, you need three legs at least, or else the table falls over. Right. Right. The other corollary to the Zeppo for Puffs as a, as a text is the fact that the way it is written and structured by the time the seventh book comes around in the play, you realize Harry doesn't get to succeed without the work that the Hufflepuffs are doing while he's off being Harry Potter. And really, it positions them as though Hufflepuffs actually are the ones who save the day in this apocalypse that is happening, not because they're the ones who kill Voldemort, but because they're the ones doing all the other stuff while Harry is off being a hero. And I love that about this text because what it does is it reminds us how important Hufflepuffs are to the Harry Potter universe, to the Harry Potter story. And also it reminds us that in our own lives, lots of people are quietly going about making sure that we succeed, sometimes without us even knowing. And I think that's a wonderful sort of moral of the story of that particular play. And that you don't have to be a hero lauded by the masses to have lived a, a rich, full life, too. That was a nice message as well. Right. Yeah, so definitely into Puffs. Oh, it was gosh. great. So good. 
we should talk about Austin's paper. At this conference, one of the things that we as a division, Harry Potter Studies division, are really proud of is that there's an award given every year for the best paper in science fiction fantasy here at the conference. And Harry Potter Studies for the last six years has pretty much dominated that category. We win it almost every year because our scholarship is really, really good. This year, it was won by Harry Potter Studies again in a really great paper that positions Hagrid in the story of Harry Potter as Messiah, it positions Hagrid as the Virgin Mary. And it was by Austin Jenkins of North Carolina State, and it was called uh, The Holy Half Giant. It's fascinating in the ways that he was able to take the biblical story of Mary and Jesus and layer Harry and Hagrid on top of it in ways that I had never considered. And by the end of it, I was thinking, yeah. How did I never How did you never see this before? Especially for I was raised Catholic, so I was really annoyed with myself that I didn't that <laughs> I didn't think about that before. It was it was just very uh, it was a smart paper. It was tidy. It was very crisply argued. I, I I think it was a great piece of scholarship, not just an interesting idea. And it did bring up some some ideas of where we've seen that in other classical literature and other narratives specifically. But one of the, the, the great things is when you deliver a paper here, because you have such great scholarship viewing the paper, it is always like throwing a live grenade in the middle of the floor. And then we turn it over for Q&A and everybody's like, I got an idea. I, that made me think of this. Mm -hmm. And one of the good discussions that we had after that paper was the idea of the the virginal mentor, for lack of a better word, the, the person who comes in and is the, the virginal savior. And we've seen that in many other instances, at least the, the celibate mentor. Obi-Wan Kenobi, Obi -Wan. you know, you can go down the list of these sort of celibate mentor figures who help our messiah of the story reach their ultimate goal. Putting all these things together, if you look at many of the, the mentors, and I'm specifically thinking of the Jedi in this, in this situation, one of their precepts is that you, if you have these romantic relationships or any sort of emotional relationship, it's going to make you a worse Jedi. Like, you can't do it. Which is the good thing about Puffs, because the, the whole thing with the Pufflepuffs is that no, love is the thing that you need. And one of the, the papers that I really enjoyed was Matthew Sterner Neely's, uh, where he talks about deconstructing his own privilege because he is Hufflepuff. You know, despite his desire not to be, uh, he, he took, the, <laughs> took the quiz several times every time it came back Hufflepuff. But uh, eventually he embraced that and recognized that that is the sort of thing he needs as an educator to realize uh, is that you need the the emotional relationship, not just with other people, but with your students as well. They can't just be student number one and student mm -hmm. number 45. Right? So it's kind of weird because as we do every time on the deconstruction workers, we've arrived at this point of sort of, so what? But I don't even know what the question, so what, is. Is it Harry Potter study, so what? Is it Southwest Popular Culture Association, so what? 
What did you learn this week, so what? I don't know how you want to take the so what question this week, but I'm going to throw so what out there and see what you got. I think it's so important to conference. I, I think it doesn't always get the lauding that publishing does, but for me it is such an important emotional experience to come to a room and share ideas that aren't perfect and aren't completely well formed with people I respect and trust. It always makes my work better, it gives me new ideas for next year, and it really revitalizes me as a scholar. So I'm just very grateful for, for this space, and I think that wherever you find that space as an academic, it's desperately important because so much of the job wears you out and burns you out, but this to me is the antidote to that. <laughs> so. yeah, I can't relate to that. I would say that our so what is that although it is very common for Harry Potter studies work to get passed off as being flippant or childish. The work that we've seen, not just this Swapaka, but in the past six years or eight years since it has existed, proves that we are rigorous scholars doing excellent work and that I hope that we can keep doing it into the future. I would say, just to add to what Tracy was saying, that publishing, you kind of, you just put your stuff out there and you don't really ever know if anybody even reads it and you don't get that that kind of instantaneous feedback but every year I come here and I feel like I walk out a better more rounded scholar because one I'm hearing ideas that I never would have come up with on my own Brian's AI thing was like mm -hmm. you you encounter especially because Harry Potter studies is so interdisciplinary you encounter stuff that you never would have encountered normally uh, and you get to talk with scholars who come from completely different disciplines, completely different backgrounds, and with entirely different focuses. And all that does is make you better and more more well-rounded. So I'm just grateful to, to come here every year. It's been a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful week yet again. The So What for Harry Potter studies and pop culture more broadly is the same So What for any of the humanities, which is it's what makes us who we are as a people, and we need to study that to, to understand, you know, what are, the, what are the pitfalls, what are the benefits? And just sitting here again, not as a, as a Harry Potter scholar, but as a Harry Potter groupie, for lack of a better word. <laughs> uh, it, it's fascinating to see so many brilliant people bring their expertise to a text, which is, as you said, a cultural touchstone. And we have to examine those cultural touchstones because they are so broad and because they are so, th this sounds prejudicial, but invasive to our lives mm -hmm. right? and pervasive in our life. So it's important, as you say, to, to frisk these sort of things. For me, and maybe it's because I'm in rhetoric, maybe it's because I'm a rhetorician, but I am inherently distrustful of applying standard peer review processes to humanities publication. And the reason for that is I think it allows for an opportunity for you to be the academic version of a keyboard warrior. It allows you to be able to say horrible things to people in print, send it to them, and never have to suffer the consequences of having done that. I like presenting research at conferences. I like hearing research at conferences because it's a very immediate, say it to my face kind of an environment in which I put out knowledge into a room full of other people who are incredibly knowledgeable. 
if I say something that provokes someone's sensibilities, they have an opportunity to say it to me directly right there in the moment, and then me to be able to defend my work. Or, you know, me being able to collaborate with someone on the fly in a way that makes the production of that knowledge better in the immediate moment. I am 100% with Tracy. I think conferences are vastly more viable for the generation of research, the generation of knowledge than publishing is. I think they're vastly more important. I think we devalue collaboration as a, as a career field. Academia in general devalues collaborative work. It values evaluative work. It values me from my high horse position being able to say, yes, you are allowed to speak now, or no, you are not allowed to speak now, which is garbage, <laughs> particularly in the humanities, and particularly, particularly when we're dealing in issues of culture, because what it does is it frames it as though there are people out there who have more cultural knowledge than you do, and therefore their opinions are more valid, which absolutely is antithetical to the idea of talking about culture in the first place. So I love coming to, to Southwest P PCA. I love talking to this group of people. I love being in this room where so many smart things have been said over the last eight years, and I can't wait to come and do it again next year. I, it's a valuable experience for, for me as a scholar. For all of us. So, my friends, that's the end of, a, of another episode. This is our first live one. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope that the, the quality was still good for you as a listener. If you do enjoy this, please shoot me a, an email at thedeconstructionworkers at gmail.com or you know, send us a message on our Facebook group or on Twitter or become a Patreon subscriber, however you want to communicate with us. But please let us know if you enjoy the quality of this. For Dustin Dunaway and Marley Stever Williford and Tracy Beeler and Lauren Camachi, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. This has been the Deconstruction Workers, and we will see you in two weeks. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Feel free to check out thedeconstructionworkers.com, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers, or Twitter at podcastdcw. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can donate as little as a dollar a month towards keeping the lights on at www.patreon.com slash podcastdcw. The Deconstruction Workers is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for The Deconstruction Workers was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, please support alternative scholarship and public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers is copyright 2018, all rights reserved.